Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Good morning and welcome to Medicine on Call. Today I want to have a, I believe, an important show about the term scope of practice. I'm not sure if people have heard about the doctor here in Georgia who was operating on patients performing plastic surgery procedures, although her credentials state that she is actually a dermatologist. I wanted to make sure that people understood what it means by scope of practice. I've spoken about it on occasion, about allied health care professionals practicing outside their scope of practice, but it happens within the physician ranks as well. When I graduated from medical school, I chose the profession of an otolaryngologist, which is an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And in order to complete my training, I had to do two years of general surgery and four years of ear, nose, and throat residency. That's a lot of training. And I chose that because I wanted to be a surgeon and I wanted to super specialize within the head and neck region. Now. We all know there are general surgeons, trauma surgeons, surgeons that specialized in reconstructive surgery, um, urologists, OBGYN. There's a ton of different surgical subspecialties, but what they have in common is that they actually do general surgery as a base residency. And what does that entail? That entails being on call hundreds of hours a week, doing surgery on the abdomen, understanding the anatomy, of basically everything from the the neck down. I mean, you're not a neurosurgeon, but they still have to do general surgery as well. But essentially, it's not a surface type of, uh, of, of uh, training. You have to understand the pathophysiology of something. You have to understand the anatomy. And that means actually being in cases where, over time, you learn how to approach the treatment, surgical treatment of a medical condition. It's not just medicine, it's actually quite technical. Under the uh, umbrella of general surgery, there are also electives. So when I trained, I had to do an elective in orthopedic surgery, in OBGYN surgery, in urology, in ophthalmology, and I got a very good um, base of knowledge, a broad brush that let me know exactly what what was in it took to be a a practitioner, a surgeon and a practitioner of these particular specialties. But one of the most important things I learned in the general surgery arena was when things went wrong. It's not just about doing the procedure, it's also about being able to foresee and actually control and take care of the complications, the emergency Um, the emergencies that invariably come when you least expect them. And that's what training is about. It's not about just doing the case. It's actually thinking about what could happen. And that's where I think the scope of practice issue really, really becomes important. I like to use the old adage of just because you can doesn't mean you should. I mean, if more people would think about that before they do things, I think we'd be living in a much better world. Maybe you shouldn't do the, the tweet. You shouldn't text. You shouldn't call someone in the middle of the night just because you have an inkling to do so. I mean, the, the list is endless. But in terms of healthcare, just because you 
want to do a procedure and it looks easy and you take a weekend course in, in it and that just makes you an expert all of a sudden you're out there doing it without any you know without any rope I mean it's like being on a high wire and I think this um, this physician here in Georgia exemplifies that she's certainly not alone I've heard of all sorts of things dentists doing uh, liposuction you know, you have ophthalmologists doing facelifts. You have a ton of things going on out there. And, you know, honestly, I think part of the problem that started this is our reimbursement system. Because the pressure and the onus is on the physician, especially private practice, to keep their their doors open, I think people have decided they needed to th- to expand and to do things that were cash-based and really the only left, the bastion left in healthcare that is driven by the market solely is plastic surgery. And I think that's why you're seeing a ton of, of professionals and sometimes not even doctors, by the way, but we're talking about doctors in this, um, this scenario. That's why you're seeing doctors expand what they do. Now, this particular doctor was a dermatologist a dermatologist is a medical doctor who practices, specializes in any kind of skin ailment. And so her practice morphed from dermatology to facelifts, tummy tucks, and she encroached into the ear, nose, and throat arena and also allergy, doing skin testing for allergy and testing for food allergies and uh, all sorts of things. And really, I think it boils down to having a practice that you can get as much a cash value out is possible. I don't begrudge anybody the ability to make money, but there is a line that really shouldn't be crossed. If you really have not been trained in something, and if you're putting yourself out there as an expert or with credentials that you don't have, to me, that crosses the line of what a physician or any professional should be doing. Not only is it unprofessional, but it's actually unfair to the patient. I mean, the one thing that really is that is so important to me and that I can't even express the the it's it's a humbling thing when somebody puts their their well-being and their life in your hands, that they trust you, that you're going to take care of them. Anybody who breaches that should not be a physician. They shouldn't be in our profession. This um, scenario with this physician is an eye-opening experience, and I believe it's actually a teaching moment. We as physicians really need to be better stewards of our profession. And I'm, I'm all for doctors expanding their, their knowledge base and going to courses, but there needs to be some sort of mindset of, you know, what's the, comp- what's the consequences of me doing something? What's the worst thing that can happen? And if that answer is something that you cannot live with or you believe in your heart, put your patients at risk, then you should not be doing it. And on the patient side, you know, I I would have to say that we live in a world now where social media and YouTube and um, the production value of celebrity is a problem. I mean, this person built herself as a dermatologist to the stars. You know, I have a question mark about that. What happened with Joan Rivers? She was also in a position where her celebrity, unfortunately, you know, got her killed, if you really want to be honest about it, in a facility that wasn't the proper facility for an ear, nose, and throat procedure without the usual, 
you know, fail-safe equipment, it was done, it was just inappropriate. And if we believe that just because a celebrity has it done in a certain location with a certain physician that it makes it good, I question whether that's a really wise way to think about it. It's not. You really have to do your own due diligence. I preach that all the time. And it's not just your insurance company. It's not just, you know, what, you know, whether you want to go to an independent doctor or a doctor that's in, that's, um, on the, on the payroll or staff of a hospital. You really have to look at the credentials of the physician and what you're getting done. There is no reason why you can't do the same, uh, you know, background work, you know, do your double checking on what your doctor is going to propose that you have done. You do it for everything else, right? You shop for cars. You, if you have a child, you're looking at the different schools the child is going to go to. You look at the background. You do all of this research, but all of a sudden, brains seem to turn off when it's a lot of glitz involved, or if it's on the internet, it must be true, or worse yet, it's on the news. And if it's if it's on the news, and it's then it's absolute fact. We should know now that the system doesn't really work like that, does it? That you really have to be critical. You have to be a critical thinker. And you have to be a steward of your own health. This is the moral of the story. You know, I feel awful for the patients that were, that were damaged by this physician. And I would counsel anybody. I don't care who you're seeing. There is no reason not to ask the, the doctor, the facility, for information about patients that they've operated on. You can ask for um, their credentials. You can go and look them up on all sorts of platforms about whether they've had malpractice suits or whether they've had any kind of patient bad outcome. This is all out there, but people seem to want to see the glitzy part and not the underbelly of it. But you only have one chance in there sometimes, and you really have to make sure you're making the proper decision. You know, what your gut tells you really does matter a lot of times. I would also say that in this environment, it's really difficult to to create a relationship with your physician. One, because of the time element, the time constraints. The average patient spends, uh, what, seven minutes with their physician at this point. It's really difficult to have a really in-depth relationship. And I think that patients, you know, if you want to have a two-second or a, a minute clinic experience, then so be it. But you need to understand that's not the only thing out there, that there are still physicians like myself and my colleagues who actually take what we do seriously and spend the time to explain every option that you have. If you walk into a surgeon's office, for example, if the only thing they're offering you is surgery with no other choice, I'd have a question. There's always a choice. You know, there's always a, a way that can be approached, that can be individualized. And if that's not happening, then you're perfectly free to get a second opinion. People do that for everything now. Why not a physician? And if you're not happy with your relationship, then you need to seek uh, help elsewhere. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's almost like people have this mindset of, I, I don't have a choice. I have to take what I'm given. I should like what I get. And, um, and well, you know, and if there's a bad outcome and so be it. That's not how this works. The patients have ultimate power. I cannot express that enough. I've said it multiple times on this show, but I want you to really listen to it this time. You as the patient have the ultimate power. You get to decide what doctors you want to go to. You get to decide what treatment that you want to have. You get to decide what, what 
how you want to approach a problem. And it's our job as physicians to be knowledgeable enough and open enough and self-assured enough to speak that way with you so that we can come to a, uh, you know, a, a conclusion and, a, and, and an options that work for the individual. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And if you don't take your power back, trust and believe it will be taken from you. And on that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Before the break, I was trying to really empower the listeners, all the patients out there, to be in control of their health. But I'm also speaking to my colleagues, my fellow physicians, about our, us taking our power back. You know, when I opened my practice in 2001, one of the things that I had to give up was everything that I did as part of my scope of practice. I trained at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and part of our training was to treat head and neck cancer. We did it day in, day out, four or five cases a day for a year. And that was an amazing experience. When I got out and started practicing medicine, I did head and neck surgery. I did the tough cases. And over the course of my practice, I had to restrict my scope of practice because the insurance companies started to put a value on my time and on my expertise. And if I wanted to keep my practice open, I had to make decisions. I no longer see children. I no longer see Medicare patients. I no longer do head and neck cancer surgery. And I've limited the uh, types of head and neck surgery that I do because it's a choice between staying open or not, or closing my practice, or worse yet, selling it to a hospital so I can become a hospital employee. And I had to make tough decisions, and they were tough. You don't spend um, four years of training and give up. You know, not a majority, but I'd say a good piece of what I trained to do, I no longer do. But I do know now that if somebody came to my office and had a head and neck cancer, I will refer them to a doctor that specializes in that, who does it every day, because I know that my skill level is not on the level as, as it used to be, and I don't want to put my patients in harm's way. I don't think it's that difficult for other doctors to make those types of decisions. And it's not about the money. It's not about the prestige. It's not about putting yourself out there as the best in something. It's about really talking the talk and actually being able to do what you tell your patients that you can do with competence, with knowledge, with the ability to be able to handle anything that that's untoward associated with that that um, procedure that you're doing. I think we owe that to our patients. And once we come together, when we're able to get rid of this, this middleman that's deciding the value of both us as physicians, or we as physicians and our patients, then we'll be able to have a better medical system. You wonder why there are suits that go on. And you can see that there's a genesis or there's a reason for this with this miscommunication, with this um, adversarial relationship that's been developed between the doctor and the patient. All you have to do is use the mindset of who stands to gain. It should never be anybody except the patient that stands to gain. It shouldn't be the government. It shouldn't be the insurance company. It shouldn't be anybody else. It shouldn't be the hospital. It should be the patient. And I think we've let this whole thing completely get out of control. 
Now, I'd like to tie this to what I talk about a lot on the show, which is the cost of healthcare. And again, anybody who's listened to the show long enough knows that the cost of healthcare are completely arbitrary. If you're entering the corporate uh, grid of our healthcare system, you are not paying the true cost of something. You're paying for a bloated and artificially rigged system that basically doesn't provide a service. The insurance companies and uh, the uh, big pharma and the rest of these guys, but especially insurance companies, don't really have a value. They've inserted themselves into the system and it's in their interest and it's in their, uh, it makes them valuable when the costs are so high that you think that you need them in order to access the system. This is a complete, um, you know, conflict of interest. They don't want to negotiate a cost down because then you could afford it and you wouldn't need it. I mean, think about this for a second. I've actually had people on the show that talked about the ERISA plans, and those are the plans that are self-funded. And they, the, the company will use an insurance company as their, their middleman. They'll put the money or give the money to the insurance company and then allow the insurance company to administer the plan. So the insurance company gets paid by the employer to supposedly save costs. What they end up doing is costing the, the member access to health care. I can't tell you how hard it is to work with an ERISA plan. They deny things that are medically necessary. They follow their own, they make up their own guidelines. And so they come up with any scenario to deny your, your member care. And you can actually use templates, or I should say, every surgical specialty has, you know, procedures that they, that they recommend, and they have a, a database or a something, an algorithm that's followed, for lack of a better way to, to put it, that lets the insurance company, the doctor know what's medically necessary, what you have to do, what hurdle you have to meet in order to say that someone needs to have a procedure done. There is no doctor in, that's decent that does any surgery that's unnecessary. So I'm tired of that meme being put out there. If someone's tonsils need to be removed, it's because they've been sick, because they've had seven infections in a year, recurrent strep infections, tonsil abscesses, they can't breathe. It's not because you want to make $200 on a tonsil, trust me. But the way they get around this and, and the way they pit us against the patient is to make it seem as if everything that we do is just for money. It's never necessary. It's just because we want to make a buck. Sure, it's not like that. The average doctor, a majority of doctors, do not do things to make money and to put their patients at risk. That's the mindset, and that's how they get the patient stuck in the system where they themselves deny themselves services, or they take a medication because they don't need to have a procedure done. I mean, it's all sorts of things. They shouldn't be pronouncing anything. All they should be doing is paying for a medically necessary service. That's really all they should be doing. And the fact that that doesn't happen and it's getting worse is a problem. We've now, for example, have waited for a month for a patient to have a pre-certification. We went and we did it as a staged procedure, even though they both needed to be done at the time. And now today, after a month, they're now approving the other part of the procedure when they both should have been done at the same time. Fortunately, the patient is doing well and does not need to go under general anesthesia. But imagine this. There are people who have to go under multiple rounds of general anesthesia because the insurance company decides they're not going to cover something. Or you have to be sick for X number of months or be on X number of antibiotics. Anything they can do 
to drag it out, to make you go through more medical hoops, to make your life miserable, really, while they save money. They're collecting a premium, you know, every time you pay it. They're putting that money in their pot. They're collecting interest on it. And it's in their interest not to pay it out. This is a perfect example of it. And this goes on, you know, I mean, it's, I don't even know what to say about it, except from a patient standpoint, you need to be aware that they are leading you as the patient down a path that serves them and not necessarily you. And that's a big statement. But there's many stories I think anybody must have a story at this point about how their insurance company denied something or sent you for more testing or put you on more medication instead of just doing what was expedient and what was really reasonable at the time. All I'm asking the patients to do at this point is to really do their own due diligence on exactly how they interact with this system. You pay your premiums. There's, you have the power to say to an insurance company, I'm paying you, I want service, I want X, Y, and Z. If you don't do that, they run all over you. And from a physician standpoint, they don't care what we think. You know, we're the enemy. We're the, the cost drivers in their mindset. They want us to be at odds with them because that means they get to not provide the service. So at this point, it's I mean, this is, again, another version of the cautionary tale. You actually want a doctor that's going to take the time to actually work with you and explain this to you so that you together can create a, a force that's going to push the insurance company in the right direction. They're generally not going to want to give you something unless you ask for it. And if they're giving you a hard time, you're going to have to demand it. And the best way to do that is to have your doctor work in partnership with you. Now, in the flip side of this, if the doctor is not in their scope of practice, and I'm tying it back to that, you're going to have an issue with a dermatologist trying to do a surgical procedure that's outside their scope of practice being your advocate. It's not going to work. And to go further, you know, in the break, we're going to take a break in a few minutes, but I want you to think about this. If your doctor doesn't have a connection to a hospital. This is another really important point. Every surgeon, whether they're doing a procedure in their office or doing a procedure in a surgery center, has uh, privileges at a major hospital in the city so that you can be transferred there if something, God forbid, happens, and they can continue to take care of you. The last thing you want is a surgeon who doesn't have privileges because you're not no longer going to have them as a, as a physician if something untoward happens. I personally think that's a bad a bad decision. I don't want any part of that as a physician. And I would hope that patients, if they really understood that, would ask the doctor, this is one of the most important things you can ask, do you have privileges at a hospital? You don't have to be an active member, but you should be courtesy and have privileges to admit. If that's not the case, then you really shouldn't be having surgery with that doctor. I don't care if it's within or outside of their scope of practice. It's just a safety issue. And that's something that goes along or very important with communication, with transparency. There's no doctor that I know of who would give you a hard time if you ask that question. And honestly, it's a red flag if you ask that question and they get defensive. You know, this is, I have nothing to hide with my patients. I trained where I said I trained. I did my residency where I said I did my residency. I passed my boards, I'm board certified. I have, thank God, a clean record and I, you know, 
with God's grace and me being as anal as you can be. And I'm proud of that. And I don't have a problem with pa patients asking me that question. So I would recommend that you really start to ask the tough questions. It's not being rude. It's being thorough. It's being a partner in your care. It's actually taking responsibility for your health. And I have to tell you, those are the most pleasant patients to work with. And the outcomes are so much more, um, so much better, frankly, when you're a partner in your care with your patient. And I think that should be the future of medicine and the future of healthcare. And you will not get one size fits all that way. And you'll get a lot more safety because you'll actually have the ability to ask the tough questions and to figure out together. And you both can determine if the benefit outweighs the risk. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine On Call. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine On Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Before the break, I was trying to really hone in on the importance of communication in the doctor-patient relationship. If you, as a patient, do not feel that your relationship is such that you can actually speak with your doctor, ask questions, question their judgment in some instances, then that's a relationship that you really should think about changing. And you should feel empowered to do so. I mean, one of the things that, I, and I said it before, that there are system of, of litigation, I think in large part is due to poor communication and the feeling that the patient is not, by the patient I believe, that they're not being heard and that their wishes are not being taken into consideration. And I think that would, if we could change that dynamic, that would be an amazing uh, alteration in our system. You know. Ultimately, it's a partnership, and in that instance or in that, in that vein, it goes both ways. A physician is not to be abused either, and I don't believe patients should basically demand services, medication, or whatever, and that relationship, if it's one of respect, actually would change the dynamic. So let's talk a bit about... Uh, I guess what I want to talk about office-based procedures versus procedures that are done in a hospital setting. This situation in Georgia has the, uh, you know, the ability 
if it gets wings and legs, it could start the conversation that could change the dynamic. Let's let's talk about surgery that's office-based. Here in Georgia, there was a big to-do about how the office-based procedures were not regulated uh, in comparison to a hospital. You know, most doctors who do procedures in their office actually do them under local and not under general anesthesia. And office-based procedures are minor, as opposed to what was done in this instance with um, major abdominal surgery like a tummy tuck or um, long, t- you know, long t- procedures that take a long time, uh, three, four, five-hour procedures. So in this instance, this is not the norm and not the standard of care. Um, most, and especially with ear, nose, and throat surgery, this is something that's been revolutionary in terms of patients being able to undergo an endoscopic procedure, sinus surgery, correction of a deviated septum, and usually it will take about an hour, hour, 15 minutes. They're conscious, able to protect their airway, and it's a comfortable procedure, and they're out the door, and they don't incur any hospital expenses, any facility fees. The general anesthesia itself is a risk. So there are many, many instances of procedures that are done in the office that are actually safer than having them done in the hospital setting. So that mindset or that meme that's out there that, oh, you shouldn't do anything in an office really is not true. And I want to make that pretty clear that that example is really out of bounds you know, the procedures that were done, the certification of the surgeon that was doing, or I should say, the doctor that was doing the procedures is completely, it's its non sequitur because its it was completely inappropriate. Um, if you do procedures in a hospital setting, as I said a minute ago, it's a lot more expensive. You have the cost of the general anesthesia, so the anesthesia department is going to bill you. You have the OR hospital charges for the operating room, charges for operating room supplies, charges for the post-operative stay in the recovery room, nursing charges, and then they tack on a facility fee to top it off. On the flip side, in terms of the insurance, there are insurance plans that will only charge you a copay and it won't engage a deductible if you have a procedure done in the office. So you really do need to do your homework because in some instances and in some cases, it's actually safer, more cost effective. And, you know, the out-of-pocket cost for the patient is dramatically different, dramatically less. So there, it's a, it's a really layered um, example here. I mean, you really have to be in a position that you know, you need to ask the right questions. I would ask the doctor, if they have you looked at the the procedure, is it something that can be done under local anesthesia? Have you checked the insurance plan, and do you know what my out of pocket would be if I choose to do a procedure in the office versus in the operating room? These are actually important questions, which could change the dynamic of your outcome and also financially affect you. I mean, the hospitals in in this day and age, even though they do a lot of precautions, they still have a high infection rate, a higher infection rate, generally speaking, than in the office setting. So there's everything has a risk and a benefit, but it should not be one size fits all. So 
keep that in mind, you know, when you're, if you do need surgery. And let's talk about now, how do you navigate the system? I mean, the first thing I would do if I needed a procedure is I would ask my physician who they recommend, who they would send their family to. And that gives you a very good base to start from. There aren't, there are no doctors who refer consistently to anybody that they don't trust or have not had a good outcome with their patients that they send there. And that means communication. If I get a consult from a colleague, we discuss it on the phone before the patient comes. I send a note back to the doctor. They're completely in the loop. And that's continuity of care. In the setting now, there's there's a lot of gaps. I mean, I you can have patients who come in from the emergency room referred in. They don't come in with a note. They don't give you any kind of history or background with the patient. And patients generally will come in and maybe they don't know what medications they're on. They don't know what allergies they have. They're not even sure why they were sent to you in the first place. So part of a good referral system where the patients don't get you know, left in the lurch is to have a colleague who will discuss the patient with you. Nobody gets referred to a specialist who isn't complicated, who the question, they have the, the um, referring doctor has a question about what the problem is, and they're asking for more specialized assistance. So there's nobody who's slam dunk that walks in, in your office when you get a referral. And I think patients need to be a partner in that. You need to ask whether the doctor who's, who you've been referred to has your notes, have they discussed it with um, your case been discussed with the referring physician? These are totally reasonable questions. I mean, the last thing you want to do is a patient come in and say, I don't know why I'm here. The doctor doesn't know why you're there. There's a seven minute visit going on. And next thing you know, no questions are answered and it's a mess. And that can save you time, money, extra procedures or um, tests that are ordered. And a lot of waste in our system are people ordering tests and labs because they don't know and they're trying to hunt and peck. If you can hone in on the problem before the patient comes in, that's a really big, you know, a step forward in actually being able to, you know, get to the root of the problem quickly. Most of the time, a, a diagnosis can be made by the history. That's how I was taught. We were taught that you at, you have a thorough history with the patient, and anything you order is to confirm your, your initial differential diagnosis. You can't do a differential diagnosis, which is a list of the possible medical conditions or the problems that the patient may have based on their presentation and their history and their symptoms. The history is the most important part. The physical is to confirm what you're thinking. And then the testing is done in order to try to get the definitive answer in order to initiate treatment. Anybody who's in a position where they're ordering tests because they don't know, that's a problem. And that's a waste of your time and waste of your money. And ultimately, it's not good medicine because we have a lot of people now who are on medications who've gotten extra tests, who've, you know, it's just kind of throw it up on the wall and see if it sticks. And that's not the way to treat patients. So in order to keep yourself out of position where you might see a physician who's not sure of themselves or treating outside their scope of practice, it, it really becomes, uh, you know, you can cut to the chase 
if you actually do this with intention. If you know, if your doctor has sent you to a physician, you know, first ask, or let's say the doctor's made a, you need a consult. Ask the doctor to send you to somebody that they normally send to and that they trust or who they'd send their family to. That's the number one thing I have to tell you that would ease the burden of you as the patient having to go out on the internet or look on YouTube or do all these things that are just playing Russian roulette, essentially. Um, it's about relationships. It's about relationships between the doctors, it's relationship between the nurses, the relationships between the patients. And the system works really, really well when everybody's on the same page and we're not having, you know, backbiting and you know, areas where the patient is left on their own because the doctor is too busy or an allied health professional has taken over the care and the doctor has never seen the patient and we have consults going out without the doctor knowing that what's going on with the patient and just signing off on it. That's another thing that really needs to be addressed, that there is an oversight system within this, that when you have a mid-level provider, they're supposed to go over this case with the doctor in detail. The doctor should come in and examine the patient and then give orders about what the, um, what the treatment should be. And it seems like it's a lot of automatic pilot going on. And that's something that as a patient, you want to be aware of. If you don't ever want to see your doctor and you love your nurse practitioner or physician assistant and you feel comfortable with them, that's awesome. Then you can have that type of relationship. It's great. If you want a different level of care, then you should actually ask to see the physician and actually have them go over, if you, if you hadn't seen them and it was your nurse practitioner or physician assistant, have them go over the exam with you and the differential, which is, what do you think it could be? You know, those are all interesting and important topics that you need to go through. And actually, this is one of the most important times in the, in the doctor's visit because it allows you as the patient to understand what the problem is and to actually, with the, with the physician, make a game plan on what, what it means to have the, the problem and how to fix it. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. You know, it's kind of become a wild west out there where it's it's like a maze trying to navigate this system. And it really doesn't have to be that way, which is really sad, actually, when you think about it. Um, another, you know, we talked about the patient using their primary care or the referring doctor as a resource. Another resource is the American specialty boards. So if you're going to see an otolaryngologist, you can go to the American Academy of Otolaryngology website uh, and look at the, the practice scope of practice for an ear, nose, and throat doctor and our subspecialists, whether it's a neurotologist that only does ear surgery, plastic surgery, um, geez, what else do we do? Allergy, asthma, you know, all these things. And so you can actually see what the scope of practice for an ear, nose, and throat doctor um, is. You can do that for every single specialty, whether that be dermatology, orthopedics, um, uh, pediatrics, you name it. 
the specialty boards actually are a resource. Um, so that's another uh, another place that you can actually get information that you can begin doing your own research. If you want to go to the hospital's website, you can also look at the doctors at uh, your academic hospital in your city and look up their department and it'll list the physicians within the department and each one will list their specialty. So again, you can actually get good information that's well presented, easy to understand with telephone numbers that you can actually call and ask the, the office itself. Is that doctor still there? And just confirm what they do. That's the beginning. It's it's about getting your knowledge base to such uh, to such a level that you can't fall for any kind of okie doke out there. I mean, I've heard all sorts of jokes about you know you get what you pay for and you can't get physicians on Groupon and that sort of thing. And you know, there's some truth in this. You do get what you pay for. But it's not quite as simple as that. Just because it's reasonably cost or reasonably priced doesn't mean it's bad. Sometimes you can pay extra and not get what you actually want. That's where becoming savvy is really, really key. If you go to the American um, Association of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, aapsonline.org, there's a list of doctors there that are independent, that are solo, small independent practices that are freestanding, that have not sold their practices to the hospital. And these doctors, as I've said on multiple occasions, actually are probably the first line of defense against this because we run small businesses. It's in our interest to be price transparent, to be patient-centered, because we want your business, because we want you to to tell your friends, your loved ones, your colleagues, how good we are, so we you send to us. That's a whole different mentality than a monolithic, huge corporatized system that, that's the only game in town that can do whatever they want. They can charge what they want. They can see you when they want. They can, uh, you know, offer services with mid-level providers and you really never get to see the doctor in, in your consultations, I've had patients come and tell me that they've never met their physician, not even on the first consultation. It's just shocking to me that that's going on. But these are the the, the different steps of of access into the healthcare system. Once you know and you're you're armed with information, there's nobody like this doctor that could pull this on you. That you know, I do dermatology and I'm a surgeon because you would know off the bat. Uh, no, you're not, because if you're a dermatologist, you're not a surgeon by definition, right? So you wouldn't have fallen into that unfortunate situation. You know, it's all about being able to discern what the truth is. Well, your insurance company telling you that they don't cover something, but you read your bylaws or your guidelines within the insurance plan, and it's in black and white that it's covered. You know, these are the things that if you don't really, really, you know, dig deep, you can actually lose out on benefits. You can lose out on coverage. You can do a lot of things, but they, that's what they expect. I mean, these guidelines are long, pages long, 
law contracts are like 30 pages long as a physician. And it's on all of us, patient and doctor, to read the contract. And if you see something in there that doesn't, doesn't sound kosher, doesn't quite fit, then you need to strike it or not participate in that plan. I mean, they, they love making this as hard as possible and hoping that you don't read it so that they can ding you after the fact. They do it every day. But we do have the power. There is a contract. And if something is covered or you struck it so it couldn't be you know, used against you, then they can't do it. They don't want that. So I highly recommend that everything you do and everything that you put in your mouth, everything that you buy, whether that's... Uh, medication, whether that's um, uh, organic foods, you know, laundry detergent, cleaning, you know, cleaning agents, that you actually start reading these labels. And honestly, if you don't understand what's in them, maybe you shouldn't be using it or eating it or putting it in your body. I mean, this is a, this is a complicated system that's designed to think for you, to be the uh, arbiter of what, what you need and what you're allowed to have. And if you acquiesce to it, it will get you. It's getting a lot of people, doctors and patients at this point. And if we can just use discernment, take our power back, start reading and start knowing what our rights are, the system stops. They stop playing with you. They understand when you, when you withdraw your consent, when you say, I'm not going to take this medication because I think the side effects are really bad. What else do you have? Is there a natural way for me to do this? Is there a way for me to do it so I can prevent it from happening? These are the questions that you actually have to start asking. And you'd be amazed that you'll either find a doctor, a healthcare provider that gets it and so you know I don't take this medication either I have a natural way to approach it let's try that you know they're looking for partners and those that poo-poo you or try to dismiss you then you know you're in the wrong place and over time they do understand money so if you stop going to these these uh, practices and these hospitals that treat you like you're an idiot they start changing what they do because they're losing market share same thing goes with the insurance companies. If you want to get a procedure done, it's not covered under that insurance plan, and you have a choice with your, let's say you're employed, and it's a choice, pick the plan that actually will offer you the services that you want and need. That's simple as that. It's not always what's cheaper up front. That's, the, that's really the unfortunate thing. Those plans with the low premiums and the high deductibles they really give you a lot less choice because when you do need help, they're not going to cover it or you can't afford it. And therefore, you've just spent a premium for no reason. So think about the worst scenario. You know, you get hospitalized. Do you really want to, or if you have a choice now, I mean, you may not, but if you have a choice of paying uh, a $3,000 deductible versus 8020 Maybe the $3,000 deductible is better because it maxes out at a certain point, and the 80-20 on a $100,000 bill is a whole nother ball game. You know, so you have to start thinking about eventualities as opposed to what's in front of you in everything. I mean, I really just, this whole system is just based on after stuff happens. Now it's the mindset really should be, what can I do to prevent the problem? It's all about prevention. Everything you do is about putting yourself in a position that you don't get sick, that you don't need the medication, 
that you can remain mobile and self-sufficient for as long as possible. Because these are the things that's going to keep you in, in a financial health, in a mental health, in a social health, in a healthy environment. I mean, this is not, it's, it's a bigger picture than just, you know, thinking just one step ahead. It's like playing chess with this. And the cool part about this is that you get to make the moves. You get to make every single move. Nothing should be done to you without your consent. I want to have control over my financial, um, you know, medical emotional destiny. And I control that. Nobody gets to control that for me. It's a huge difference in mindset. And it just kind of pervades everything. You got your boundaries, you have your knowledge base. And now it's all about putting yourself in a position to use it. So, you know, this is a cautionary tale with this doctor. This is a teaching moment, as I said. And I hope everybody who listens to the show now has a, a a game plan and a feeling that I can I can handle this. This is not going to to you know I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to live in fear. That's what they want. Live in fear, you're paralyzed and you just take what you get. If you actually have control and knowledge is power, then you can navigate a system and not be hosed by anybody. And that's my wish and goal for everybody who listens to the show and for every patient that I see. I love what I do. I love my, I love my listeners and I want to thank you for listening to my show because this is all about empowerment and teaching you how to stand on your own, how to be powerful, how to not be a victim in any sense of the word ever. And on that note, I'm going to end. Thank you very much for listening to Medicine on Call and I'll see you next week. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.